0: Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the the churches of Galatia. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me, is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, Father, as we come now to another book in the library, another letter in the Scriptures, we pray that you will open our eyes not to hear, Lord, 2,000 years of tradition, But instead, Father, to hear the intent of your Spirit. To hear what you meant, what you desired to speak. Because we believe, Lord, not just that contextually the words were important for the churches in Galatia, but we believe that your words, as sent, as given, are absolutely relevant to us right now. And as we do begin this new year, head into 2017, Father, I ask, I pray, that you would pour out the relevance of this letter on this fellowship and on our hearts and help us to see and truly grasp the passion with which these words were written. And we thank you, Father, that once again you have seen fit to bring your word across the ages to continue to show your people how to live. And more importantly, Father, to show us Jesus. Help us to see him in these pages. Lord Jesus, help us to see and hear you. By your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So, the question I've been pondering is, why is New Year's Day today? Why New Year's Day on January 1st? I mean, whose idea was that, really? The earliest recording of a New Year celebration appears to have been 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, and it happened at the time of the vernal or spring equinox. Mid-March was originally, I guess, celebrated as a new year. That makes sense to me. You know, the winter is over, the spring has come, things are getting green, the days are getting longer. Happy New Year. But January 1st? I mean, the ancient Egyptians celebrated it, the Phoenicians, the, the Persians, and of course, the Hebrews. All have their New Year in the fall. But why is New Year's Day in the dead of winter? I mean, truly, at this time of year, maybe someone was just saying, we need something. (laughs) Because this is just no good. January 1st took over in Rome in 153 B.C. It was actually set because that was when the proconsuls were decided on the annual uh, raising up to leadership. And then after that, Julius Caesar further codified it around uh, 46 BC, January 1st, and from then on out, that's when it's been celebrated as the new year. Still, in the short days and the long nights of winter, I would probably head back to like March 1st, you know, or April 1st, granted. That's April Fool's Day, so maybe that's why that's avoided. I don't know. And in 1582, the Gregorian calendar finally set January 1st as New Year's Day to mark the feast. I like this. The feast of the naming and circumcision of Jesus. And so they began to celebrate it at that time. Luke 2.21, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived In the womb. And perhaps there's something to it. That is a sign of hope in the dark. Great light coming into dark times. A a sign of future even when days are cold. Jesus, that sign of hope. Yeshua, the great light. God saves the name in whom hope springs eternal. So if you need a new year in the spring, if you need spring right now, well, Jesus is the one who brings that hope. And it is in the name of Jesus we have that hope. And I, I want I got a side note from my notes here, because I can. Um, we sent Valentine home, our foreign exchange student, grew to love her in just a few months that she was here. One of the discussions we had from time to time, and I don't know that we ever got the point across, I hope and pray that ultimately it will come across. But that's the concept of Jesus. That Jesus is not church. That Jesus is not a religious perspective. That that Jesus is not your paradigm. But that Jesus is a person. And He wants to know you personally. And wants relationship with you. And as a matter of fact, He's also God. But the whole issue of... And this is where the world just misses it. And I I heard it in the news over this last week. References to Christianity that that express Jesus as a point of view. Well, that completely misses the whole point. Jesus is a person. Jesus is reality. Jesus loves and wants you to love. And, and, And when we don't understand that, as often we don't in the church we begin to codify things. We begin to uh, take what is beautiful, relational, freedom-bringing joy and we turn it into a ritual. And we turn it into responsibility. And it becomes a heavy weight. And I think few things angered the heart of the Apostle Paul more than misunderstanding Jesus Christ and what He represents Perhaps that's why Paul hits the ground running in this letter to the Galatians. And he does. I I, I hope you heard it in my reading of it. There's a brief introduction, and and the next thing you know, he is on it, man. He is hitting it hard. He's hitting it fast. And, and, And differently, of course, than 2 Corinthians. I'll talk about that a bit. First, let me just point out that Paul is the undisputed conveyor of this letter. That across the board, from the most conservative to the most liberal theologians, scholars, uh, church people, when you come to the letter to the churches in Galatia, no one questions that this came from Paul. Some of the earliest church fathers supported Paul as the author of this letter. No one questions that whatsoever. But we only get six verses in, and all of a sudden, he's making perhaps his boldest defense of the gospel of grace. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't work his way into it gently and softly. Even with 2 Corinthians, the letter of comfort that we just finished studying, he worked his way into it, offering comfort to the people before he got onto their case, which he needed to do in a very personal way. But boy, the letter to the churches in Galatia, fiery, passionate. Paul, I believe, perceived how quickly amazing grace was being set aside for what I would call retrograde faith. Retrograde faith. Not necessarily a biblical term, I just kind of made it up, but it is basically a faith that tries to advance by retreating. A faith that thinks it's moving forward by going backward. It's belief built on works, and it crushes the freedom of grace. And it is absolutely typical of humankind. Remember what Paul said to the church in Philippi? He said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that sounds marvelous. Let's race for the goal. Let's go forward. But how do we do that? And that's where the flesh begins to trip up the spirit. That's where even as Christians we find ourselves working it. People say, well, I gotta press on. I gotta move forward. Gotta grow a church. How do we do that? We work it. You know, we strategize and, and we, and we put our, our back into it, man. And we pull up our boots and we get moving and that is the response of skin and bones. That is the response of humanity. Think about this. Just ask yourself, I've had to deal with this now for several weeks. How many of us slide into the mindset that progressing in faith means harder work? Well, I'd love to be a closer follower of Jesus Christ, I just don't have the time. How many of us think that it means heavier schedules? Well, I just don't have more time to give to the church. How many think that it means heftier religion? Well, I know those people are so spiritual, but I, just, I'm just not, I don't have the time, the energy, or the wherewithal to do what those types of people do. It is flesh mentality. It is not spirit. If you've ever wondered for all the effort why you seem no more spiritual this year than last year, Granted, last year was just a few hours ago. But Paul asks this very probing question, and I believe it is the key verse of this letter to the churches in Galatia. It's chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? That's the issue. Having begun by the Spirit, born again by the Spirit of God, Jesus said in John 3.6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Because until you're born again, you are working it in the flesh and it doesn't work. But when you're born again, born of the Spirit, well, that's a whole new thing. Now you've got a whole new day. Now it's truly New Year's Day. It's New Life Day. I've been born of the Spirit. I'm a changed man. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Born of the Spirit. And Paul says, you started that way. That's how we all start. In Christ, that's how you become a Christian. You're born again. And then so quickly, people head right back to the flesh. Oh, I don't mean in terms of immorality and sin choices. I mean in terms of how we act and what we do and how we think as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, once a person is born of the Spirit, there is a grave danger of creeping flesh. Trying to draw me back to an old way of thinking, Paul says in Galatians 3.5, So then does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you Do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Works of the law is retrograde faith. It's backwards-moving faith. Rather than hearing by faith, walking in the Spirit, now that is pressing on toward the goal for the upward prize in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're not sure what exactly the difference is here and where we're going, stick with me. We got six chapters that's going to work it out of us if we are willing to listen. The flesh, the flesh wants to know, what are you doing for God? What are you doing? You know, what's your, what's your business as a follower of Jesus? What are the things that you can tangibly point to and say, well, I did this and I did that and here's why I'm involved here and, and, and I'm ministering in this way. That's the flesh. The spirit, listen. The Spirit just invites you to come live in Jesus. Now, which sounds better? Well, I don't know. I don't know, Rick. Uh, the second one sounds better, but the first one sounds a whole lot more like my church tradition. <laughs> sounds more like what I'm comfortable with, because if I go to the other one, just coming and living in Jesus, I mean, that just uh, sounds like a hippie, really. Like, what are we drawing back to here? We're all just going to sit on the beach and play guitars? Doing versus living. And that is the issue in this letter. Now, Galatians has been called the battle cry of the Reformation. And those of you with a Reformed background probably say, yeah, this is our book. Well, that's great. Great due to its impact on men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and later on, John Wesley. They loved the book of Galatians, the letter of Paul to the churches in Galatia. Luther even called Galatians his Catherine von Bora. Why would, that, that was his wife's name. So he's saying, I am married to this letter. Luther's words. But I want you to understand something, and, and truly this is... Somewhat new understanding for me. There is a traditional view of this letter that while doctrinally valid, doctrinally sound in terms of scripture, I believe misses the divine intent. And it comes from the reformed tradition. It comes from that understanding, from the commentaries of the reformers, Luther, Calvin, guys like this. Who, by the way, for all the positives and negatives said about them, they were just trying to follow Jesus too. Okay, so it's, it's easy to start to jump on a bandwagon and be anti, one of these guys with a name. Uh, don't do that. Just, just be pro-Jesus. Um, they did the best they could with what they had, but understand what they had was a perspective based on the times in which they were living. And one of the challenges when you study Scripture, and especially when you study and use commentaries... One of the challenges is to step back and say, but this is a perspective that does have the influence of the time in which it was written. The wonderful thing about Scripture itself is the only influence is that of the Spirit of God. And it really doesn't matter when the time was that it was written, because God breathed it, and God's words remain forever. Jesus said, my words will never fade away. But these commentary writers, Gordon Fee points this out. He's a commentary writer, too, by the way. He says, both Luther and Calvin read the letter through the eyes of their struggle with Roman Catholicism. Makes sense. Therefore, they tended to read the letter as primarily having to do with justification by works versus justification by faith. But that is decidedly not the matter that called forth this letter. The issue of this letter to the churches in Galatia was not justification by faith. It was, in fact, grace. But, listen, grace not as an entrance requirement, but more as a maintenance requirement. Not how to be saved by grace, but how to live in grace. And there's a big difference between the two. One is the coming to faith in Jesus, which you must do. But the other one is then living in that faith. Living out that faith. Paul is writing to churches here. The church is in Galatia. And so it is not a treatise on justification by faith. It is a treatise on how to live in the grace of God by the Spirit of God. Not how to get saved, but again, how to live saved. And that's a, a unique perspective. It, it's, it's the perfect letter, by the way, I think, for Jesus' people, especially here in the new year. It's also, by the way, the perfect letter for the non-believer to understand and learn where salvation is headed. So tell a friend. You know, it's not just a believer's letter. That's the marvelous thing about Scripture is regardless of, of the, the recipients of the letter or the people who, to whom it was written at the time, whether it's written to believers or non-believers, it doesn't matter. If you're a non-believer, you can get saved anywhere in the Bible. Leviticus. We saw people get saved during Leviticus. I'll never forget years ago, uh, a man, many of you remember Hank Sakinga, big Hank, giant of a man, played tiny little classical guitar, amazing classical guitarist, came to faith through our study in the book of Daniel, in the prophecy section. And that's where he gave his life to Jesus. So anywhere in scripture is going to draw and talk to the non-believer or the, or the unbeliever But understand Galatians is really talking to believers and saying, Look, you're missing how to live. You're drawing back instead of pressing forward. Now, as I said, Paul is the conveyor of this letter. God breathed by the Holy Spirit, who is the author. Never forget that. When we begin to undermine the authorship of the Spirit of God in the Scriptures, we lose the power of the Scriptures, they become words on a page. Paul was the one who dictated it. It was penned by another until you get to chapter 6. I'll show you that in a second. But whether it was Paul or another actually pinning the words, it was the Spirit of God bringing the words through the passion of this man. Now, the Holy Spirit plays a major role in the argument of this letter, as we will see. Maybe not so much this morning, but we're going to get to that and look into the, the references to the Holy Spirit Having to do with spirit living, which is the way it ought to be. But unlike the letters to Corinth or Rome, understand this as well. Paul is not writing to a church. But according to verse 2, he is writing to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to churches in a region, an entire region. Now there's dispute about what region that is, whether it's North Galatia or South Galatia. These are the kind of disputes theologians get into. And and I guess it it makes some difference in understanding and and in gathering the history to it. North Galatia, the, the whole area is Turkey today. So if you just look at a map of Turkey, that's Galatia both north and south. North Galatia was the original Galatia where the Gauls came out of France. Gauls settled there. Gaul is where we get Galatia. And they settled in North Galatia and that became really more of a rural and an ethnic Galatians, but then South Galatia, that became far more commercial and less ethnic, but it was more, it was just called that because it was connected to regionally North Galatia. And so there's dispute and debate about is it North or South. Paul's first missionary journey, he went through the South of Galatia, through cities like Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And as he went through those cities, that was the first missionary journey, and so people say, see, South Galatia. But on his second and third missionary journeys, he made his way through North Galatia. So it could be either one or both or to the whole entire region, but again, we're talking about Turkey today. Another point of uncertainty is the actual date of the letter. Now some say it should be an earlier date, perhaps the first letter that, that Paul ever wrote, and um, I toyed with that thought. I've, I've considered that over over the years. Uh, some think maybe around 49 to 50 A.D. that Paul actually penned this letter very early on. Others think that he wrote it more like 55 to 57 A.D., which I think is the better choice. I could be wrong. It doesn't really matter. You're saying, okay, 50 to 55 is five years, Rick. Who really cares when he wrote it? Well, historically there's some significance To the difference in timing. Because the earlier writing of the letter would be before what we call the Council of Jerusalem. The later dating of the letter would come after the Council of Jerusalem. And you'll see why that's important in just a second. Part of the reason I now lean toward a later dating that is mid-50s is because of the stylistic and linguistic similarities between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans. Which probably were written in that order. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Romans. That's probably the order with which Paul wrote. But, however you date it and wherever you place it, Paul, again, has been called the undisputed author. In fact, Galatians has been called the most Paul of all of Paul's letters. You really want to hear the heartbeat of this apostle. This one is, is the most Pauline. It is his heart. It's his passion for Jesus and the gospel of grace. Man, it just soaks these pages. Jesus and the gospel of grace. Now, again, I said he dictated this letter. He does so all the way through chapter 6, verse 10. And then at the end of the letter, you can flip over there if you'd like to. In verse 11, Paul takes up the pen himself to authenticate that he in fact is the author. In verse 11, chapter 6, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I don't know if that was like block writing or if he was just scrawling it as big as possible to say, look, pay attention. But then he says in verse 12, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But, Paul says, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." And by the way, and I think this is true of all Paul's letters, but something that you will see in this letter vividly is that the nail-scarred hands of Jesus are all over it. This letter takes us back to Jesus and the cross. Now, the occasion of Paul's writing this letter is something that is very clear because we see it throughout the letter. Some men had come in among the Gentile Christians. The Gentile Galatians. And what they were demanding is that to be a true Christian, you got to be a true Jew. To be a true follower of Jesus, see if you've ever heard this in the church. To be a true follower of Jesus, you need to do things this way. Our way. You need to follow our traditions. And if you don't follow our traditions, or you choose to fellowship elsewhere, you are not a true follower of Jesus Christ. These were what some have called the Judaizers, which, by the way, I think is probably not the best word for them, and I'll explain. But they came along saying to these new Gentile Christians who have found freedom in Christ Jesus, they came saying, Oh, yeah, 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 freedom in Christ Jesus, but you've got to do three things. You need to keep three aspects of Hebrew law because, you know, Jesus was a Jew, he was one of us. So you've got to be circumcised, you men. Can you imagine trying to explain that one to a full grown man who had just given his life to Christ Jesus? It's hard enough getting people to get baptized. Come on to the front, give your life to Jesus, and we got circumcisions happening in the back. I would think thrice. (laughs) Keep circumcision, keep Shabbat. Be sure you keep Sabbath. We've got an entire group of people in an entire faith tradition in Christianity today that says that. Gotta keep Shabbat. You must keep Sabbath. And thirdly, kosher food. Hebrew national hot dogs are okay. Anything else? So you gotta be kosher, you gotta be circumcised, and you gotta keep Shabbat. And this issue was one of the earliest legalism issues in the church. Turn back to Acts chapter 14. Keep your fingers there in Galatians. Go back just a few pages. Acts chapter 14. And again, this goes to the writing and the timing of the writing of the letter to the churches in Galatia. But they are being affected and infected by this mentality that said, yeah, you can come to Jesus and receive salvation, but you got to keep circumcision and you got to keep the Sabbath. And on top of that, you got to eat right. You know, kosher law. Well, Acts chapter 14, verse 24. Watch this. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and from there they sailed. Back to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had accomplished. I love how Luke writes that. That is the responsibility of any missionary, of any evangelist, of any Christian, really, is that you are commended to the grace of God. You are commended to the grace of God to take the grace of God. That is our calling. So they were commended to the grace of God. For the work which they had accomplished, verse 27... When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had had done with them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Some men, chapter 15, came down from Judea, and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so this is an actual rite of salvation. When Paul and Barnabas had, I love how he says this, great dissension and debate with them. Heated arguments, folks. I, I imagine the room was hot that night. As they were having this conversation, these, these men coming in saying you got to get circumcised, and Paul's like, whoa, wait a minute, no. No, 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 no. And Paul wasn't saying that because he himself hadn't been. Remember, remember, he was a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul knew Jewish tradition, had been raised in the thick of Jewish tradition, had lived it to the hilt, and he had met Jesus. And he knew the heart of Jesus, and he had been taught and trained by Jesus. And so when these guys are trying to pull these people into retrograde faith, to drag them backwards into law, Paul got hot. Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, that is not the Jesus who saved me. So they had great dissension and debate with them. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria. I love this. Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. There's your background. And for the first time in the early church, suddenly an issue of religious, legalistic tradition came into play. And so Paul and Barnabas did make their way up to Jerusalem, came to what was in Acts chapter 15, and we won't read the chapter this morning, but it's a great background for understanding Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. The council there at Jerusalem and the conversations and the discussions that happened in that place and the resolution that came out of that council meeting. It was the council of Elrond, of the apostles. (laughs) But this is an early sign that we get, again, in the church of retrograde faith. Why does it happen? I suggest to you. That the reason why people come to faith in Jesus by grace and end up sliding back into religion is not because it's a church problem, it is a human problem. It is an issue of flesh. It is the reason why we have more laws on the books in America than anyone can count. And why they keep getting churned out at record pace. Because we have to codify everything. And that's what the flesh does. It's the only way the flesh can feel secure. If we have every answer to every question of every issue in every life, then we'll be okay. So we keep writing laws, man. And we do it in the church. We keep adding to. Paul and Barnabas go up. They, they meet. And, and so I'm of the view, which believes Galatians was written after this council, as these dissenters made their way into the Galatian churches of Paul's planting. And back in Galatians now, chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. I want to give you four things to jot down as we consider just a few verses here at the outset. The first thing is this, the agency of authority. Note this, the agency of authority. Paul asserts that the agency of his authority is Jesus, period. You know that none of us can actually say that. I mean, we, we can say that, that Jesus is the one who brought us to faith. He gave us faith. But every single one of us have had training via man. Through a, a man, a woman, another believer in Christ. We have been discipled by others, taught by others, trained by others. And that's not to say it's wrong. Because if others are following Jesus and we're following them, then we're in a good place. So don't misunderstand me. But Paul makes it absolutely clear the agency of his authority is only Jesus. In other words, what I'm writing to you, I didn't learn from anybody but him. This comes straight from the Savior's mouth. It is not via Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. This is straight from the Lord. Listen, this, this letter has Paul very fired up. And not personally, as with Corinth. Remember, there there was some contention there with Corinth, right? It's not personally fired up. He's not personally offended or dealing with with personal issues between him and all of these churches. That's not it at all. He is passionately fired up. And it's not self-defensive passion. What he's doing here is he's heading off any challenge to his right to write. Any challenge that someone might bring up before they can even bring it up, Paul says this comes direct from Jesus. What I am telling you is from the Lord. It is not from man. It's not even from me. It's from him. Luther had this to say. He said, when I was a young man, I thought Paul was making too much of his call. I did not then realize the importance of Paul's ministry. He said, you see, we exalt our calling not to gain glory among men, or money, or satisfaction, or favor, but because people need to be assured that the words we speak are the words of God. Luther said, this is no sinful pride, this is holy pride. That's, that's really stirring. It's also difficult, because it's very difficult to navigate You know, holy pride versus (laughs) sinful pride. Anytime pride comes in, of course, the flesh jumps at it. But Luther supports and he's talking about Paul knowing his place in the chain of command. Paul understood his role. And Paul could be as bold as he's about to be in this letter because these words are not his words. These words are the words of Christ. I'll tell you honestly... It is easier for me to be bold when I am just reading Scripture. Anytime I start to insert opinion, that's when i, I, I got to be more careful. But I can be right up in someone's face if it is direct out of the Word of God. Because it's His. It's not mine. I'm not the one saying this. He is. And that's where Paul is beginning when he says, This was not sent through the agency of man. So the agency of His authority is Jesus. It, it, Paul knew where he stood again in the chain of command, like the centurion. You remember the story who came to Jesus there in Capernaum. I, I think it's interesting. Only two times in Jesus' entire ministry are we told that he marvelled, just twice. The first time is in Mark chapter six verse six, where Jesus marvelled at the people's unbelief. The second time is in Matthew chapter eight verse 10, but let me just read it to you. Matthew 8, verse 5 says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he, for the second time in his ministry, marveled. He marveled. And he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The centurion understood the chain of command. He understood where he was in this place. Paul got it as well. He knew that the agency of his authority was not from man. Rick, you're really harping on this. That's because i got to ask you this question. Do you know your place in the chain of command? Are you assured of the agency of your authority in Christ Jesus? You see, a lot of Christians are... Nervous about sharing their faith. Not sure enough. A little hesitant, perhaps, to really speak the simple truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know the agency of your authority? Do you realize that we speak and we share Jesus by the authority of the Holy Spirit? His Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. That He is the agency of our authority. He is the one who gives us right to say what we say. People always want to know... By what right? Where's your authority come from? Where do you get off preaching at me? You know what the simple answer is? I'm preaching to you because Jesus loves you. And I'm just His agent. I'm just His ambassador. I'm just representing Him. What I'm sharing with you is not from me. It's from Him. God loves you. I don't really love you, but God loves you. I'm kidding, of course. I'm kidding because in the agency of our authority, if we don't come in the attitude of love, we might as well not be there at all. But the truth is, this is is the gospel of Jesus. Do you know your authority? Someone says, what right do you have to judge me as lost? Hey, by the grace of God, I stand in the line of the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could a man like Paul be so bold? Because he knew exactly where his information and his message was coming from. It was not from him. It was not from Peter and the apostles. It was from Jesus. Paul's right to write this letter and all of his letters was Jesus himself. Now, of course, Paul's apostolic training, this is a little different than you and me. His apostolic training was literally by Jesus He asserts as much. In fact, skip ahead and look at verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where my training came from. Boot camp for the Apostle Paul was with the Lord. And he's going to go on and describe that as as the first chapter continues. We won't get there this morning. But we'll see these things as he again defends the agency of his authority. Jesus was Paul's private rabbi. His own personal trainer, if you will. And yet, isn't it interesting, even today some will question that, They try to pit Paul against Jesus. They try to say, oh, Paul came along after Jesus and he took a hold of this whole Christian thing, this whole gospel thing, and he made it into this religion that it is today. No, he didn't. (laughs) No, he didn't. You know who says that? People who have never read Paul. People who don't understand the heart and the passion. People who don't read the words and see them in the context of Jesus Christ himself. You see, you can't pit Paul against Jesus because Paul was simply an agent of Jesus. Now, I could have spent the whole morning, and I thought about it, talking about the connection of Paul and Jesus, although we will see it throughout our study in Galatians. But Paul's entire teaching, all of his letters came back to just two very simple premises in the agency of his authority. Two things, salvation is only by the grace of God alone, and secondly, faith is how you receive it. You can sum up the entire teaching, the doctrine that comes down through the Apostle Paul in those two things. That you are saved by grace and you receive that salvation through faith. That's it. In fact you could probably sum it all up in Ephesians 2 8 and 9 where he says by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves no it is a gift of God so that no man can boast that aligns perfectly with the teachings of Jesus Paul did not go off on his own he didn't come preaching a different gospel No, as John wrote in John 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce wrote, Paul, like Jesus, shocked the guardians of Israel's law by his insistence on treating the law as a means to an end and not as the end in itself. By his refusal to let pious people seek security in God by their own piety... By his breaking down of barriers in the name of the God who justifies the ungodly, and by his proclamation of a message of good news for the outsider, Paul was simply conveying the message of Jesus Christ. He knew the agency of his authority. And Paul immediately lays down, number two, the attention of the gospel. The attention of the Gospel, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've pointed this out before, but grace, charis, that's a Greek greeting. And peace, shalom, that is a Hebrew greeting. And that goes to the heart of Paul as well. But grace and peace. He begins every one of his letters saying grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, verse 4, gave himself... For our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And just those three verses are packed with the Gospel. They are the Gospel. He greets them and He launches immediately into the Gospel itself, laying it out. Make no mistake, Paul might say. Jesus Christ gave Himself. For our sins. And note why he did it? To rescue us. To rescue us. Do you hear the song? To rescue us. Do you hear the song? Paul brings in this statement the same eschatological edge that laces all of his letters. What are you talking about, Rick? The same end times mentality. The same future sense that Paul has in every letter. We see it right here. He is always looking forward. What does he say? He came to rescue us. He gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age. The word from, ek in the Greek, is out of. To take us out of, to rescue us out of this evil age. As he says in Colossians 1.13, He rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear the song? Rescue from. It implies that day of liberation when we are ultimately taken out of the world and transferred into His presence. How marvelous is that? And these last days may seem like the dead of winter. May feel like dark days of winter, but spring is coming. Spring is coming. And Paul never lets us forget it. There's a, a song that I have come to just love this, this last fall. It's by a group called Fountains of Wayne. You've probably never heard of them. It's okay. And uh, the song is called Valley Winter Song. I love the way it plays, the, the, the feel of the song, the whole vibe of the tune. is just really cool. And the lyrics are great as well. The whole song talks about how uh, winter can really, quote, drag a man down to the point that you feel it in your guts. And Fathers of Wayne, this is an East Coast band, and so they, they, they're used to long winters. And the writer says this in the chorus. He says, the snow is coming down on our New England town, and it's been falling all day long. <laughs> what else is new? What can I do? I'll sing a valley winter song I wrote for you. And that's the Chorus. Let me ask you, are you stuck singing a valley winter song? That's not our song. We are not stuck in the dead of winter singing about the dead of winter. That's not our song. Do you hear the song? Listen. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 11, For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone, the flowers have appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines and blossom have given forth fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Which sounds awful lot an awful lot like Jesus saying to John in Revelation chapter four, verse two, Come along, come up here. That's our song. Do you hear it? Or are you stuck singing a valley winter song? What else is new? It's cold, it's dark, it's a bummer, but I'll sing about it. Man, that's the way of the world. Singing the the song, the tune of the world. I think of that great hymn, Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing His mercy and His grace in the mansions bright and blessed. He'll prepare for us a place and the chorus... When we all when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. That's the song. Do you hear it? Do you sing it? And do you know it? See, when we sing that hopeful song, as Paul says in verse 5, note what happens, to whom the glory is forevermore. That is, God gets the glory. When we sing of our future, when we sing with longing for heaven, when we look forward to the coming of Jesus, when that's the song in our hearts and in our lives, we are are given the glory to God. That is the attention of the gospel. The attention of the gospel of grace is the glory of God. The whole point of the gospel which Paul presents in verses 3 and 4 is verse 5, the glory of God. Now, the Gospel is my salvation and yours. The Gospel is good news for every human being who ever hears it and responds to it. But it is not about us as much as it is about and for the glory of God. That's the attention of the Gospel. And Paul makes that clear right up front. Again, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. I can't boast in the gospel because I didn't do anything. And that's the issue. The flesh wants to be able to boast. The flesh wants to say, yeah, I got up and went to first service New Year's Day. I don't know about the rest of those faithless bridgeites. People taking the day off. I was there, man. You know, it would have been great. We should have thought about it. Give the little buttons. I survived New Year's Day at the bridge. You know, something like that. No, that's not what it's about. You don't get the credit. God gets the credit. You don't get the glory. God gets the glory. We don't boast. The boast is all in Him. Or Paul says, May it be that I would never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's the whole focus and the attention of the Gospel. And even when you are out sharing the Gospel with someone who is lost, the attention is not so that you can save someone because you don't do it. He does And God gets all the glory. Religion? Retrograde faith? You know what religion is? It's either self-defeating because you can't do it, or it's self-glorifying because you think you can. Either way, it is ungodly. And Paul gets after this. This is why Paul's gloves come off. Verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, i got to confess to you something. Right there, I I thought, that's a great place to end. And you're probably saying, yes, it is, Rick. i got to go a little bit further and it's only because we're introducing this letter but there are a couple things you still need to know and I'll move quickly through them but understand these things. Paul says you are distorting the Gospel. How do you do that exactly? How do you distort the Gospel of Jesus? It's very easy. Just add something to it. Just add something to it. Take the Gospel plus the Gospel and... But when you do that, understand that the good news is suddenly no longer good news. Good news is salvation by grace. That is good news. Rescue by relationship with Jesus. A real person. A real God and eternal life. that's, That's good news. Bad news is salvation by my goodness. Because depending on the day... It may not be such a gospel day. If I am looking at me, man, good luck with that. That's not good news. Who would exchange the sweet freedom of the grace of God for the sweat of your brow? We call them, number three, the agitators of legalism. The agitators of legalism. Those who are disturbing you is what Paul says in verse 7. And I want to point these out to you because he's going to address this quite a bit in the letter. Those who are disturbing you, it is the Greek word terasso. Terasso means to disturb, to stir up, or to cause trouble. In this case, the phrase is actually written, the terasantes. The terasantes, the disturbers, the dissenters. Uh, those who are agitators, if you will. He uses the word again in Galatians 5.10. The one who is disturbing you, Teresantes, will bear his judgment, whoever he is. We see the word used in Acts chapter 15. At the end of the Jerusalem Council, verse 24. James and the Apostles, they write, We have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you. With their words, Unsettling your souls. Now, listen very carefully, because we gotta make a slight paradigm shift in our understanding, especially if you've studied this before. These agitators have traditionally been called, and I have called them, and probably as recently as two weeks ago, <laughs> Judaizers. The Judaizers! And, and there's a reason for that. In fact, it comes out of chapter 2, verse 14, where at the end of the verse, Paul uses the phrase, live like Jews, which is iudiodso. Yudiazo, live like Jews, it's to be Judaized or to be Jewish-like. And so that word, early commentators grabbed hold of that and started saying it was the Judaizers who were causing problems in Galatia. And the reason for it, again, is those who would impose Jewish law to make you Jewish-like on Gentile Christians. But you know what? That's not fair. In fact... It's not biblical. The phrase Judaizers, as so often applied in Galatians, is misleading. Why? Because true Judaism draws back pre-law. True Judaism goes back 400 years before Moses. True Judaism goes back to a man named Abraham who was a man of faith. Faith. It's always been about faith. God has always called and looked for people to respond in faith. The law was given so sin might increase. Right? Romans chapter 5? That's why the law was given. It wasn't to increase faith, it was to increase sin. To reveal sin. To show us our our incredible need for grace. And Paul is going to, in chapter 3, we won't do it right now, but in chapter 3 he powerfully points out That the whole issue was faith, and he goes back to Abraham to prove it. And so to call these dissenters, these disturbers, these agitators, Judaizers, is, is misleading. The truest Jew, listen, the truest Jew is one who has faith in Messiah. Just as the truest Christian is one whose faith is in Christ. Messiah, Christ, it is all Jesus, man. It's all Jesus. And by the way, the passion of Paul's entire life was the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one man. To make the two one. That was his heart. That was his passion, his desire. He saw and understood better than the church does today. Far better. In fact, a church that is becoming more and more liberalized in America and more and more anti-Semitic. And I may be talking about that in coming weeks here, but I'm reading a lot of stuff that's incredibly disturbing. Those who would disturb the gospel of grace are those who oppose Israel as well. But let's set that aside for a moment. I could really go off. Jew and Gentile, Paul said, I'm bringing them together. The fulfillment of God's promise to who? Abraham. His promise to Abraham to be fulfilled in the end of time is through you all the nations, all the goyim, the Gentiles, of the world will be blessed. And so it was no longer a Jew or Gentile thing. Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, He Himself is our peace who made both, that is Jew and Gentile, one. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. But the agitators come along and they are subtle. Even Peter got drawn into it. And Paul had to get all up in his face about it at the end of chapter 2. That's an interesting conflict. Peter himself... And the reason is the flesh always goes retrograde. The flesh starts in the Spirit and begins to go the opposite direction, back to old ways, old attitudes, old thinking. This this religious, legalistic, agitating teaching is so dangerous that Paul begins this letter by leveling a curse. Verse 8, But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The word is anathema in the Greek. As we have said before, verse 9, so I say again now, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. A gospel contrary... That's serious business, okay? When the apostle, via Jesus and the agency of Christ himself, is saying if someone teaches you or distorts the gospel or teaches you another gospel, they are to be cursed. That's for all time and eternity. They're going to hell, man. That's intense. Why would he say that? What is this gospel contrary? And it's very simple. The word there, a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, contrary is very simple. It means other than. Or, or, more than. If anyone comes preaching to you a gospel, more than, more than Jesus, more than Jesus, every cult does it. These two verses are often applied to Mormonism because Mormonism received everything through the angel Maroni. And so you got that issue going on. But to be cursed for this, he's saying anything that adds to a gospel more than the gospel of Christ. It's Jesus and Jesus plus Jesus 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 or 7.0. I mean, you know, if you've got an iPhone, you know, they just don't stop. They just won't leave it alone. And that is the same thing with this false gospel. And what happens is it turns, again, the person of Jesus into the religion of Jesus, which is no Jesus. Paul is so sharp against these agitators, this party of the circumcision, who would intentionally drag Gentiles out of their freedom and back into law. He is so sharp against them... Listen to what he says at the end of the book, Galatians 5.12. I wish those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Do you know what he means? Circumcision gone awry is what he's saying. I wish they would just cut themselves off. Now, Rick, that's graphic for a sermon. That's what Paul says. That's his word, not mine. Through the agency of Jesus. Man, if you're going to drag someone back into the law, you might as well go all the way. And in so doing, you're going to kill yourself. Because that is not Jesus. Jesus brings grace. Jesus brings freedom. Now, Paul obviously wasn't concerned with popularity. (laughs) As he wrote these letters. He wasn't concerned about making a name for himself among the churches. He was concerned with one thing, and that was number four, the approval of God. The approval of God, verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be, he says, a bondservant of Christ. The word bondservant is doulos, a slave. I got a choice here, Paul says. I can try to please men, or I can be a slave of Christ. I can't be both. So I am going to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Listen, when we think of pleasing someone, of gaining their approval, we think of work. I know this. If I want to make my wife happy, I know exactly how to do it. I go home, and I empty the dishwasher. And I vacuum the living room. And I make the bed. And I tidy the house. And when she walks in the door and everything's gleaming and sparkling, joy! appears on her face. And she looks at me with those adoring eyes and says, see, you can be trained. (laughs) I'm seeking the approval of God, man, so I'm doing all this work. Here's the problem. That's not how you get the approval of God. There's one way. One way to please God, and you know what it is. Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who work really hard for him. Only it doesn't say that. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you hear the grace? Are you singing the song? Resolution. You want a New Year's resolution? Here's mine. Something to get us through the dead of winter. Make 2017 The year of faith in God's grace. Which is to say, the year of the bondservant. Longing to hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave. Father, I pray that you will impose that understanding on our hearts and our minds this year. Should we even last through the year? And I pray we wouldn't. I I pray we come on home. I pray that eschatological edge of the letters of Paul... That you would put on all of us here in our fellowship that longing, that passionate desire to see Jesus and to be home with Jesus. And that that would be our, our motivation for all other things, Lord. But Father, as I, as I pray this and I pray for this resolve, I ask, teach us faith in your grace. Teach us, Lord, how to live in, in this place of of grace and freedom in Christ Jesus that is so, I hate to say it, Father, it seems to be so unique even in the church today. To really live by faith. Help us to do so, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Skip Heitzig tells a story, a real brief story, that in the early days of Calvary Chapel you know hippies were getting saved right and left and people were there showing up for church and they had their their uh, sandals on and their long hair and you know and he said he, he was present in a in a meeting where some guys from some other churches in the local area came to see what was going on with this Chuck Smith guy in this Calvary chapel and they saw all that was happening and it really unnerved them all these hippies you know praising God and worshiping God and enjoying freedom in Christ Jesus And and they asked Chuck Smith about this. Well, what are you teaching them here? And Chuck just said, well, we're just teaching them Jesus. And their response was, oh, well, if it's just going to be Jesus. What else is there? Why do we think there must be something else? Why do we always have to add to? It's just Jesus. Jesus. So we're going to worship Him a little bit. And I'm going to give you just the freedom to do one of two things should the Spirit move you to do so. One is as we worship, and at any point during the next couple of songs here, come to the table of the Lord, take communion, share it together, take it to someone, take it alone, however you need to, considering and observing the body of Christ. But also during this time, If you have been striving for Jesus and for more than Jesus and you just need to be free of that, why don't you come be prayed for? At any of the tables or come up front, be prayed for just just to be free from that. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, not to this church, not to a system of belief, but to a person, to a man, His name is Jesus and He invites you to come. Let's stand up and worship Him.